Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. The birth of Emmanuel, Matthew 1, 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. I had just left the pastorate that I had served for 10 years and had taken my first position at a Bible college in Kentucky as professor of New Testament and Greek there. The theology professor dropped by the office as I was unpacking my books to welcome me to the campus and we had a good conversation, and the conversation led to his comment that he was very concerned about what was going on in Baptist life and how it seemed that we were becoming more and more narrow and restrictive, that we were drawing the circle too tightly, so to speak, theologically. And I said, well, I guess I understand what you mean. I would hate for us to reach the point in the Southern Baptist Convention where we all had to have the exact same view of the rapture to be welcome in a Baptist church. And he said, well, I'm not just talking about eschatology. He said, take the virgin birth of Christ, for example. You can deny the virgin birth of Christ and be a perfectly orthodox Christian. Well... You know, you only have one chance to make a first impression. Now, uh, I didn't really want to get into an argument with him the very first time that we had met, but there are some things that must be said. And I said, well, I'm going to have to disagree with you there. If the Lord Jesus was not born of a virgin, then the prophecy of Isaiah 7:14 failed. And what is more, we could not trust the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, which record Jesus' virginal conception. And on top of that, I can't imagine how the Lord Jesus could actually be the Emmanuel, incarnate deity, 
one of the central claims of the Christian faith apart from his virginal conception. And if Jesus is not virgin born, how could he have been born in a perfect sinless state so that he could actually die as the perfect God-man on the cross and atone for our sin? And by this time, he's holding his hands up and he, he says, whoa, 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 I didn't say I don't believe in the virgin birth of Christ. I just said, I don't think it's important. Not important. I would say it's far more than important. It is essential. It is crucial. We have no hope for salvation if the Lord Jesus Christ was not born of the Virgin Mary, exactly as Scripture describes. And the church has believed that since its founding. One of the oldest confessions of the Christian church is the old Apostles' Creed, which is recited by the saints of God in churches all around the world every Lord's Day and has been for the last millennium and a half plus. You probably know it. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Notice not just once, but twice in that historic Christian confession, the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus is affirmed. Why did early Christians recognize this doctrine as so important? Well, it's important for all the reasons I explained to that theology professor, the reliability of prophecy, the historical accuracy of our Gospels, the incarnation of deity, the sinless perfection of our Savior. Now, what we may overlook is that the virgin birth of Jesus Christ has very practical ramifications for us as well. We sing the old hymn, Blessed Assurance. Well, the virgin birth of Christ gives us some very blessed assurances. It assures us that God can do the impossible. It assures us that God keeps his promises. It assures us that God has not abandoned us. And it assures us that God will save us. First of all, the virgin birth of Emmanuel assures us that God can do the impossible. The structure of the Greek text of verse 18 is unusual. The phrase of Jesus Christ is actually at the very head of the sentence in a position of great emphasis. So that after describing birth after birth after birth after birth in the genealogy, we now come to the account of Jesus' birth and Matthew says, but of Jesus Christ, the birth was like this. And the point of that emphasis is to stress that Jesus' conception and birth was completely unique. 
His conception was unlike that of any of his ancestors mentioned in the preceding genealogy. Now that says a lot automatically, doesn't it? Because some of the conceptions mentioned in that genealogy were amazingly miraculous. For example, we read about the conception of Isaac by a father who was about a hundred years old and by a mother who was barren. But although we have miraculous conceptions described in the genealogy in verses 2 through 17, when we get to verse 18, Matthew stresses, but Jesus' conception and birth is beyond anything I have just mentioned. And Matthew goes on to explain how. He tells us that a young woman named Mary, who had been chosen by God to give birth to the Messiah, was pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. But before they came together, that is, before they had had any sexual relationship, Mary was found to be with child. Joseph was understandably disturbed. He knew that he had not acted inappropriately with his fiancée, that this child that she carried certainly was not his, and so he assumed wrongly that Mary had been unfaithful to her pledge to him, that this was a child conceived by some other man. But while he thought about these things, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and told him that this child had been miraculously conceived, that it was not the result of a union between Mary and any man, but instead, this child had been conceived miraculously by the work of the Holy Spirit. At that point, Joseph abandons his plans to break his engagement with Mary, which under Jewish law would have entailed a public divorce and he follows through with his commitment to marry her. Now, there are several reasons that we can be confident that this child that Mary carried was miraculously conceived. First of all, it is obvious that Joseph knows he can't possibly be the father of this child. That's why he assumes some other man must have been. That's important because any who deny the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus typically would assume that Joseph was actually the father. And not only is Joseph confident that he is not, evidently the community is confident that he is not. I say that because under first century Jewish law, a man could not divorce his betrothed on suspicion of her infidelity, if they had ever spent any time alone without the presence of a chaperone. So that not only does Joseph know he's not the father of this child, the local community knows that he cannot be the father of this child. The Jewish families had been responsible to make sure that their time together was always, always supervised. 
But not only is Joseph not the father of this child, no other man is either. Mary acknowledges this in Luke chapter 1, when the angel of the Lord appears to her and tells her that she's going to give birth to the Messiah, she is mystified. And she says in verse 35, how can these things be seeing I know not a man? Know there is used in a sexual sense. Same thing that we read about in Genesis where Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived children. When she says, I know not a man, she's saying that she is a biological virgin. She has never been intimate with anyone. But the angel of the Lord explains the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This is very holy and reverent language that is drawn from the Old Testament descriptions of how the Shekinah glory of God would descend upon tabernacle and temple in order to be worshipped by his creatures. Now, just as God's glory had overshadowed tabernacle and temple, it will for a brief moment in time overshadow Mary and this child will be miraculously conceived as a result of that spiritual, not physical, that spiritual union. As a result of this virginal conception, the angel goes on to explain that number one, this child will be holy. It says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, that holy child that is born of you. Now, why does the angel refer to the Lord Jesus as the holy child? Because this holy child is miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit and necessarily partakes of the Spirit's complete holiness. But then the angel adds... Therefore, that holy child that is born of you will be called the Son of God. The Son of God in the highest sense, not an adopted Son, but the eternal Son of God, second person of the Holy Trinity, deity incarnate, God in human flesh. But then the angel added the remarks that are key to our point today. After explaining this miraculous conception, the angel said, for nothing will be impossible with God. The virginal conception of the Lord Jesus proves that nothing is impossible for God. This is, of course, an allusion back to the words of Abraham in Genesis 18, 14, where he asked, is anything impossible for the Lord? Or the implied response is, of course not. He can do anything. The angel's words, for nothing will be impossible with God, also anticipate the Lord Jesus' teaching in Luke 18, 27, where he says, what is impossible with men is possible with God. We shouldn't be surprised that this baby that is conceived and born in an impossible way 
goes on to do impossible things. It cleanses the diseased flesh of a leper with his mere command. He takes those who have been paralyzed for decades and gives them strength and mobility so that they rise and walk. He gives sight to a man born blind. He raises from the dead a corpse that was already putrefying in the tomb. He feeds tens of thousands of people with a few pieces of bread and fish. He controls the weather. He walks on water. And by doing the impossible, he demonstrates to us that he is the God who does impossible things. I don't know about you, but I am so grateful for Scripture's constant assurances that God does the impossible. Because to be honest with you, I can read a text like John 3.16, for God so loved the world, and part of me wants to immediately react, impossible. This broken, nasty, ugly world God loves? Or I can hear a beautiful prelude like the one we heard this morning. And remember that childhood song, Jesus loves me? And my immediate reaction is impossible. Love a wretch like me? And some of you may react the same way. But the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus is yet another demonstration of the fact that our God does impossible things, even like loving this broken world and loving sinners such as us. The birth of Emmanuel assures us that God can do the impossible. But the birth of Emmanuel also assures us that God keeps his promises. Matthew tells us that all of the circumstances surrounding Jesus' conception and birth took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. And then he quoted Isaiah 7:14, the virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. I don't miss the importance of the wording of this fulfillment formula. Matthew refers here not to what the prophet had spoken, but to what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. And the point that he's making is that Isaiah the prophet was the mouthpiece, but God was the author of his words. This is a powerful reference to the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures and God's amazing work through the prophets to ensure that everything they spoke and wrote was exactly what he intended to communicate. But then Matthew adds, everything that took place surrounding the circumstances of Jesus' birth took place in order to fulfill what the prophets had said. And his point is that God in his gracious providence and sovereignty was orchestrating all of these events 
to ensure the fulfillment of the promise that he had given through Isaiah seven centuries before the birth of Christ. Now, you've mainly been involved in church long enough to know that there are some who would insist that Matthew has misused Isaiah 7.14 in his quotation here. There are many who would argue that in its original context, Isaiah 7.14 had nothing to do with the virgin birth of the coming Messiah, but instead it was simply a prophecy about an event in the immediate future. The argument is that Isaiah 7.14 was intended as a sign to Ahaz in 735 B.C. and his generation assuring them that God would protect Judah from invasion by Israel and Aram, Syria. And they claim that the prophecy had to be fulfilled back in Ahaz's time, either through a birth to someone in Ahaz's court and the coincidental naming of the child Emmanuel, or to an unexpected birth in Isaiah's family and the coincidental naming of the child. This has become a very, very popular view, even among evangelical scholars, but I am completely unconvinced of it for a number of reasons. Number one, Matthew uses different words to speak of the fulfillment of prophecy in his fulfillment formulas. And there are times when he says that there is a prophecy that was fulfilled in ancient times that is being re-fulfilled in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. But when he makes that point, he uses the verb anaplerao, which means fulfill again or re-fulfill. But here he doesn't refer to a prophecy being fulfilled again or re-fulfilled as if the virgin birth of Christ is some kind of second, fuller, more complete fulfillment. He simply uses the verb plerao, fulfill, hinting that this is the initial and only fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Number two, the Emmanuel prophecy was not given to Ahaz alone. If you go back and read Isaiah chapter 7 closely, you'll see that God offered a miraculous son to Ahaz, but he refused it. And after that refusal, from that point on, the prophecy is addressed to, quote, the house of David. And the pronouns shift from you singular, Ahaz, to you plural, the household of David, all of David's ancestors and lineage. And so, no, the prophecy doesn't have to be fulfilled in Ahaz's day as long as David lines continue, as long as the house of David remains, fulfillment is possible. And I would argue that Matthew insists that fulfillment is possible in Jesus' day. Notice how the angel addresses Joseph in the dream. Joseph, thou, what? Son of David. He belongs to the house of David, to whom the Isaiah 7 prophecy was given. Third, 
The interpreters who argue that this prophecy in Isaiah 7:14 had to be fulfilled in Ahaz's time typically argue that the Hebrew word alma, translated virgin, doesn't technically mean virgin. It just means young, unmarried woman. And they argue that if Isaiah had wanted to predict a true virginal conception and birth, he should have used the Hebrew term betulah. Once again, I must push back. The fact is, this alternative term for virgin is used five times in Isaiah's writings, though not here. This alternative term does normally, in other contexts, refer to someone who is a biological virgin. But in three of the uses in Isaiah's prophecies, that term betulah has very negative associations. Three different times, Isaiah 23.4, 23.12, and 47.1, Isaiah uses that alternative term to describe young unmarried women who engage in acts of prostitution in symbolic portrayals of the spiritual corruption of Tyre, Sidon, and Babylon. <laughs> Do you think that's the word Isaiah would have chosen? to describe the purity and innocence of the mother of Emmanuel? No, that's the last term that he would have used. The term that actually appears in Isaiah 7:14 is the perfect, most suitable term to describe the true virginity of the mother of our Lord. And by the way, even Jews before the time of Christ recognized that that was the point of the Hebrew word alma, that it referred to true virginity. About 300 years before the birth of Christ, the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek by Jewish scholars. And they chose as the translation of alma, the Greek term parthenos, which clearly and exclusively refers to true virginity. And notice that what God offered the house of David is described as a sign, an oat in Hebrew. And it's clear in context that he's referring to a miraculous sign because he offers a sign, quote, in the deepest depths or the highest heights. A sign in the highest heights would be something like the sun standing still. A sign of the deepest depths would be something like an earthquake that causes the ground to tremble. We're obviously talking about a miracle that is spectacular, that cannot be written off as mere coincidence. Something like a virgin birth. And finally, we know that Isaiah 7:14 could not have been fulfilled in the time of Ahaz because of the specifics of the prophecy. Isaiah 7:16 said that before the boy named Emmanuel would reach adolescence, the land of the two kings you now dread, that would be Israel and Syria, would be abandoned. 
The prophecy was given about 735 BC, but the abandonment of Israel and Aram would not occur until 671 BC, 65 years later, after the death of both the king and the prophet. Notice that Isaiah 7, 8 explicitly mentions this very time frame. It says, in 65 years, Ephraim, that is Israel, will be too shattered to be called a people. Just to make sure we don't miss it, Isaiah gives us the precise timeline. Whenever Emmanuel comes and reaches adolescence, it must be after, not within, after that 65-year time frame. This cannot be a birth that occurred in the days of Ahaz and Isaiah. It can only be a later birth, like the birth of the Lord Jesus centuries later. And here is the point. The virginal birth and conception of the Lord Jesus constitutes the only legitimate historical fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, a prophecy that had been given 700 years before. And that assures us that even though it may not happen on our preferred timeline, God always, always, always keeps his promises to his people. What he has foretold will come to pass, even if the wait for that fulfillment is much, much longer than we had hoped. Now, that should be a blessed assurance to us because many of the prophecies and promises of Scripture have already been fulfilled in history and we have witnessed those fulfillments. But some of the most precious promises of Scripture are still yet to be fulfilled, like the promise that the Lord Jesus will one day return in glory, that he will fix all that is broken in this world. He will wipe every tear from our eyes, and death and pain and crying will be no more because the former things have passed away. We still long for the fulfillment of those promises, but the fulfillment has not come yet. And scoffers today love to do exactly what the Apostle Peter warned about. They say, where is the coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. It must be that Christ isn't coming because he hasn't come yet. That's the argument. And yet whenever... Those scoffings should undermine our faith. We can look at a text like Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25 and see the fulfillment of a promise God made seven centuries before, finally unfolding even after God's people had in many cases lost all hope of its fulfillment. And we can be assured that God will keep his promise to us even yet, no matter how long the wait.
The birth of Emmanuel assures us that God can do the impossible. The birth of Emmanuel assures us that God keeps his promises. The birth of Emmanuel assures us that God has not abandoned us. Isaiah's prophecy promised that the virgin-born child would be named Emmanuel, which means in Hebrew, God with us. Now, please understand, this is not a general promise of God's presence by His Spirit or His mere involvement in history. What Isaiah is promising here is that the Emmanuel will be the embodiment of God's presence among his people. The Emmanuel will be the very incarnation of deity, almighty God in human flesh. Recognizing that we might miss that just from the name Emmanuel, the prophet will reiterate that only two chapters later in Isaiah 9. In Isaiah 9, 6, he'll say, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. What child? What son? Well, the one he had just mentioned in Isaiah 7, 14. And then look at the characteristics he lists of that virgin-born Emmanuel. He says he's going to have more names than just Emmanuel. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's focus on that title, Mighty God, for just a moment. In Hebrew, it is El Gibor. And mighty literally means almighty. This is a reference to God's omnipotence. The fact that he can do what seems, from a human perspective, to be impossible. He can accomplish anything that he desires. And not only is he described as almighty, he's described as almighty God. El, it's the very term that Isaiah used back in 31.3 in a contrast between deity and mere humanity. The combined title, almighty God, is the very same title that Isaiah used in Isaiah 10, 20 through 21, to describe Jehovah, Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. In fact, this is the very same title for deity that had been used as early as the time of Moses in Deuteronomy 10, 17, to describe the God of Israel as the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Although there are some names for God that can sometimes be applied in other contexts to other beings like angels or even humans. This title, El Gibor, Almighty God, is used exclusively of Jehovah in the entirety of Scripture. And yet amazingly, a son, a child who has been born, a, a human being, will now deserve this description, Almighty God. Isaiah is telling us clearly and unambiguously that the Emmanuel will be deity incarnate, the God-man, God in human flesh. Charles Wesley said it well in his old Christmas hymn, 
Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Wesley couldn't say it just once. He couldn't say it just twice. As he writes this stanza of the Christmas hymn, he has to remind us again and again that the virgin-born Emmanuel is incarnate deity who is worthy of all of our adoration and worship and love and devotion. But here's the practical truth I want to get to. Because Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, we should never fear that God has forsaken us or abandoned us. Think of how often God assures his people of his continued presence with them in Scripture. He says in Deuteronomy 31.6, and then again in verse 8, Joshua 1.5, 1 Chronicles 28.20, Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Same promise is given in other forms in texts like John 14, 18, where Christ says to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. And the very one who is called Emmanuel, God with us, at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, will remind us in the final words of this gospel, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Why must God remind his people so frequently that he is with us, that he has not forsaken us or abandoned us? It's because whenever life seems to fall apart, that's the first reaction that many of us will have. Where is God if he loves me? We feel forsaken, abandoned. We feel as if God is a million miles away. But he is not. He is Emmanuel, God, with us. And not with us at a distance. With us up close and personal. Here, even now. The birth of Emmanuel assures us that God can do the impossible, that God always keeps his promises, that God has not abandoned us. And finally, the birth of Emmanuel assures us that God will save us. This virgin-born child not only bears the name Emmanuel, the angel commands Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, which means the Lord saves or Yahweh delivers. Why? Because that's who he will be. He will be the Lord God coming into the world to save and deliver sinners. To make sure we don't miss it, the angel explains. You shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people 
from their sins. Now, that promise reminds us, first of all, that all of us are sinners in need of saving. We stand guilty before a holy God for rebelling against the King of kings and the Lord of lords by defying his commands and breaking his laws. And because of that rebellion, we deserve his just punishment. Not merely physical death, but what Scripture calls the second death, eternal death. Eternal conscious torment under the wrath of a holy God. But Jesus came to save us from our sins. The word save is a powerful word. It it, it doesn't mean to just give aid. It doesn't mean to just assist. It means to deliver someone from a fate from which they cannot deliver themselves. Jesus doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The powerful verb save reminds us that there is nothing that we can personally do to escape the wrath of God, to earn God's forgiveness, to make up for the wrong that we have done. Jesus must save. And how does he save? He saves by coming into this world as the perfect God-man living the sinless, perfect life that we can't possibly live so that he can go to the cross and take the punishment for our sins in our place so that we can be forgiven. Jesus saves us by being punished for our sins so that we can be rewarded for his righteousness. Isaiah the prophet, who's been a focus of this passage here in Matthew chapter 1, knew this very well. The virgin-born Emmanuel that he describes as mighty God, the ruler from David's throne in Isaiah chapter 9, will continue to be the focus throughout Isaiah's prophecy, especially in what are referred to as the four servant songs. And my favorite of the servant songs reminds us that the coming Emmanuel will not only be deity incarnate, he will be the sinner's only hope. Matthew's gospel will frequently quote from these servant songs of Isaiah because he wants us to in particular see that the Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of that song in Isaiah 53. It says, surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that would bring us peace was imposed upon him. By his scourgings, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one unto his own way. But the Lord has laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. This is our only hope for salvation. There was a time in my life when I thought if I could just do enough good deeds, if I could just serve the church faithfully and fervently enough, I would make up for my sins and please God. But I found myself further and further and further behind. And my goal to just fulfill the most basic commandments of Scripture until finally I woke up one day and recognized that my quest was completely hopeless. That I was doomed and damned. And when it was finally explained to me that I did not need to try to save myself by my personal goodness, by my fulfillment of God's laws, that the Emmanuel had come and paid the penalty for my sin in my place. It was the best news I had ever heard. And it was news I've never gotten over. You can have your burden relieved today. Your tormented conscience can at last know peace. You who are the enemy of God, as Scripture declares, as an unrepentant sinner, can become the child of God and the friend of God by simply repenting of your sins and bowing before Jesus, confessing Him as God, as King, and as Savior, recognizing that He is the virgin-born Emmanuel, recognizing that He is the King that Isaiah promised seven centuries before and recognizing that he is that suffering servant who dies as the atoning sacrifice so that our iniquities can be forgiven. God can save even the worst of sinners. Yes, what seems impossible is possible through his power. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I don't know which of these assurances you needed today. Maybe it was all of them. Maybe some of you forgot that God can do the impossible. You feel like you're in an impossible situation. There's no way out. There's nothing that can be done. Don't underestimate the power of the Almighty. Some of you may need to be reminded that God's always, always, always keeps his promises. He's never broken one. He never will. My guess is most of you need to be reminded that God has not abandoned you. Yes, I, I look around the room and I do see some empty spots in the pews. I don't know all the people that are no longer here. You do. Uh, what I do know is God is here. And that's really all that matters at the end of the day.
He has not left you. The one whose name is Emmanuel, God with us, gave us the promise, lo, I will be with you. Not sometimes, not most of the time, always, even to the end of the age. And some of you may need to hear the promise that that God will save us. If you have come to recognize that you are a sinner who has rebelled against the holy God and deserves his punishment and that there is nothing you can do to make up for your sins, I want you to be assured that things are not hopeless. There is one and only one hope, and that is the Lord Jesus. Confess faith in him as the Son of God the virgin-born Emmanuel, God with us right now. Surrender to his authority as the king of your life and trust his sacrificial death on the cross for your forgiveness and for the promise of your eternity with the Father. And if that's your commitment, in a few minutes when we sing together, You'll find men standing here at the front of the church. I'll be joining them. And you can come forward and tell us about your commitment to the Lord Jesus today. I assure you, no one will judge you for that commitment. We will celebrate it. We will be thrilled to know that God has saved another sinner just as he saved each of us. Father, I pray that you will comfort and assure your people through the display of your character and your power and the virgin birth of Emmanuel. And I pray that you will etch these truths on our minds and hearts throughout the week when we are tempted to despair. Give us hope with these blessed assurances. In Jesus' name, amen.